Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring professional journeys. I'm your host David Gidali and this is episode 28 and my guest today is Hugo Gecha uh, and I'm very honored and privileged to have Hugo on this channel. I'm a big fan. He is a very influential visual effects supervisor and director online. He has a very um, popular YouTube channel called Hugo's Desk. Uh, where he shares uh, a lot of valuable information about his experience as a visual effects supervisor and head of Nuke department at The Mill London, uh, where he worked for five years, uh, starting in 2012, I believe. And, um, and apart from that, uh, he releases a lot of valuable videos um, specifically about Nuke. He shows breakdowns of shots that he... Uh, composite himself also things that he was on set supervising uh, he has a great video that I really enjoyed about uh, VFX the VFX supervisor toolkit uh, which I found very interesting and uh, viable and I haven't seen a lot of uh, videos like that um, and I just admire him and people like him who are both uh, talented and very prolific and uh, and hardworking and also find the time to share um, the, their knowledge with others and he does it in a greater and more effective way than most people that do it uh, because he has just so much content uh, and he releases so much all the time uh, he's also active on uh, twitch uh, where he streams a lot of uh, keynotes and and live uh, uh, portfolio reviews and uh, product uh, reviews um and it feels like it's never ending. It feels like every other day there's some new content coming from Hugo's desk. And yeah, just a great inspiration. And I'm very honored and happy that I was able to nail him down for two hours and, and have a conversation with him. So I can't wait for you guys to enjoy this episode. And uh, on top of that, even more cool than that, uh, unlike any of the previous episodes, this episode is also available on video. Yep. Of course, Hugo has a, a robust uh, video recording set up on his end, so it was a no-brainer. And I'm, uh, I've spent some extra time in preparing this episode also as a video. Uh, I opened a uh, YouTube account for the Post Post Podcast, and you're going to be able to check out this episode. I'm going to share it on um, social media and, of course, on the postpostpodcast.com. And that's it. But of course, uh, I'm also releasing it as a podcast because this is uh, where we are. This is probably where you're going to hear about it first. And if you decide that video is not exactly uh, your flavor, which I totally understand, I listen to podcasts mostly uh, when it's probably less convenient to uh, consume content as a video, um, you can still enjoy it in the old fashioned way. And you, you're welcome to check out the video in the future if you just want to see me as i'm recording it because i'm also appearing on that video obviously and um, i'm just putting it out there in any time whenever you want to check it out you're welcome to there's a little bit more uh specific intro in the episode itself with hugo on the line bear with me if i'm repeating myself the intro is pretty short in the episode itself and without further ado i give you episode 28 of the post post podcast My guest today is Hugo Geha. 
Guerra. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah it, it's, <laughs> well, in, in Portuguese, it's uh, just uh, Hugo Guerra. That's how you, we call it. But people, most people call me Guerra. Just call me Hugo. It's easier. It's simpler. <laughs> uh, Hugo, you're a director and a visual effects supervisor. You have over 20 years of experience. You've been, you were head of Nuke department at Mill back in 2012, or I don't know, for, for, uh, uh, for many years. And, um, and now, I think for the past six years, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been... Uh, You've kind of opened up a new venue or, or a new trajectory in your career, which is, you know, you became a, an online uh, persona, uh, basically an influencer um, and a teacher online. And you have a, a, a great following on YouTube and a Patreon page and you have Kickstarter campaigns for courses that you're um, delivering and, and your Twitch stream, which I'm dying to hear about because uh, I'm not huge on Twitch. I actually, one of the first maybe going to check out, you know, what you do there is probably one of the first times I've, I've went on Twitch. Um, so I'm curious to hear what's that all about. Um, and, uh, and you've also, uh, made a transition from working at a company to working from home remotely and leading a remote team. Um, so I think, and a lot of my listeners I'm sure would, would appreciate hearing about your trajectory and what, uh, what led you there. Uh, I will start with, I mean, I, I would love to start just hearing, you know, your, your background before you even started or how you got into visual effects in the first place uh, and also kind of understand what, uh, what made you decide all those things, you know, in, on your, um, in, your, in your professional journey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, feel free to start. Uh, at the top or wherever you want and we can just have <laughs> <Yeah>. a conversation. <laughs> well, thank you. well, first of all, David, thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. A uh, big fan of your podcast and thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very honored and, and uh, very humbled by being uh, on your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I can't believe half of what you're saying, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. I never it's lie. I don't, I, you'll see that on, on, my, on my conversation. So, oh, yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I've been working for a long time. Yes, that, that is true. Um, all those things you said is true. Like I, um, I did recently did a big, big shift. I left the mill. I was uh, head of Nuke and VFX supervisor at the mill for five years. I left in exactly five years ago. Uh, wow. It was actually roughly five years ago that I left. Uh, but uh, before I even talk about what's happening now and what I've done in the last decade, um, you're asking me how I got into this. Like it, it's, it's very. It's very linked to my life back in Portugal. You know, I'm, I'm Portuguese originally. I was born in Porto and I lived in Lisbon for a long time. Uh, and uh, it kind of goes back to my fascination in movies. You know, I, I've always had a video camera, even back in the day, the video cameras, the video weight cameras, you know, the really old ones. Um, and so even when I was like 16 and you know, I was like 15, I was already filming things. I was already using my camera and taking photos and things like that. And I kind of got quite fascinated by visual effects, the early ones, you know, uh, of course, they're mostly special effects, not really visual effects, you know, early right. films of Steven Spielberg and early films of Stanley Kubrick and all those kind of things like really made, um, especially Stanley Kubrick really influenced me going into kind of some kind of filmmaking in some way. You know? And you're talking about optical 
special yeah. effects, right? Like, not, yeah, because yeah, yeah, because when I started, like when I like we're talking about the nineties, you know, the nineties doesn't, you know, I didn't have a computer until kind of ninety uh, nine. That was the first time I had a computer. Uh, even before that, I was filming and editing on video to video. You know, we would have two VCRs with like a control jock shuttle, and then you would edit video to video. That was very common back then. The, I'm, I come from that time, you know. But I think I think mostly uh, the cinema work of Stanley Kubrick was the biggest influence for me to go uh, into filmmaking in some in some capacity. And um, and back then, you know, I, I went and I I kind of like you know went to like an internet coffee people don't probably understand this but back in the day you would have to go to oh, yeah. a place to go to the internet uh, so <laughs> i would go to the internet coffee and i would like look up these companies that i saw in the credits of the films you know like ilm what is this and this light and magic or oh, digital domain what is this so i would go and search these companies and see okay where are they what do they do and then I would kind of like look at their requirements, you know, and I will never forget, like I was like 17 or 16 and I would looked at ILM, uh, looked at the mill and uh, looked at, um, looked at, um, um, I think it was digital domain already. I, I can remember that. But uh, I, especially ILM, I can I'll never forget that I went to their requirements and it said, for you to be an artist there, you have to have an art degree. Because back, in the, back then there was no visual effects courses, you know, you couldn't right. really do a course about visual effects. So um, they, they actually asked for a fine art degrees, you know, so that you would actually have fine arts. And that's what I did. Like, I, I saw that they were always asking for fine arts. So I went to, to, I went to fine arts. So I, I took a degree in Portugal, a university degree in arts, where, you know, I learned how to draw. I learned how to do sculpting. I learned how anatomy works. I learned about color, photography, lighting. Uh, and it was a five-year degree, and it was like a master's in arts. Um, and that was kind of like my first step. And at there, while I was at school, I dabbled a lot on video art. I would do short films. I would do music videos for friends. I would do like a lot of little videos. I wasn't really, I didn't really knew what I was doing for sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But I, I was using my, my cameras and I was like using video to video. And, and then I kind of like started doing like these short films with friends and especially... There was one that kind of like became very big in Portugal. You know, I started like uh, we did like a ninja film, which was the first ninja film in Portugal. And um, this was <laughs> how like many? Really, sorry, really, yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. What's the population in Portugal? How many people live there? There's only nine million. Nine million people. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, I can relate. Yeah. So, it's kind of yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just a small country. Of... <laughs> so yeah, that that ninja film became quite big, you know. Like like we we did it while I was still at university. We used like uh, analog cameras with video eight. I did. Yeah. I had my first computer, so we did a couple of shots in After Effects and a couple of shots in Premiere. This was like After Effects three and Premiere one and Premiere two. How did you uh, How did back, you take the footage from the camcorder to the computer? Did you I have had like, like a FireWire thing. You or? Know, yeah, I had a video card, so I, oh. I I was one of the first people on the school to buy. I had a Matrox video card. Oh, it wow. was called the Matrox RT2000 because mm. it was supposed to be mini DV in real time. Uh, it was really crap, you know. It captured in 420, you know. So so it was like the quality <laughs> was was abysmal. But yeah. I thought it was great back then. But yeah, we did this ninja film. It was quite big. We it brought it. It actually ended up being broadcasted on TV, which was quite uh, wow. a surprise for us as well. How long was it? Um, it was an hour long, but it became it became like a cult film in Portugal, you know. So we, it was broadcasted on TV. It had like an audience of three million people watching. Did you direct it, or I did? Uh, I directed yeah. it and filmed it and everything. So that was kind of like my first big thing in Portugal. It's a really crappy film. It's a B movie. It's like a, 
almost like an American Ninja film, you know, like it's horrible. But it was like my first thing, you know, I was 18, you know, that yeah. was like the first thing I did. And, and, and it became And it got quite seen. Big. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty it got remarkable. Seen. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I think that was the first moment where I started playing around with After Effects, playing around with Premiere, you know, playing around with all these, uh, these little things. I, I, I kind of like um, started learning by myself. There was no YouTube, you know, you couldn't really learn anywhere. So I had to like learn it by myself. And then I s just started understanding that I can't really live from doing short films. I can't really live from video art. So I started doing commercial work. You know, I started doing like, you know, corporate videos. I started doing like commercials for local TV, became like a cameraman for a local TV station. Like I, I started kind of doing those kind of extra jobs and slowly, but shlo slowly, like I started building a little portfolio, a little showreel, you know, started then getting jobs, more complicated jobs in motion graphics, more complicated jobs in visual effects. Um, to a point that then, you know, at some point I kind of felt that Portugal wasn't really big enough for what I wanted to do because... And your, your visual effects work and, and stuff, these are uh, softwares that you picked up yourself. I mean, I, I'm assuming yeah. with only uh, yeah. Yeah. traditional art background, you, you had to yeah, teach yeah. yourself so, everything. So it was like I had to learn by looking at the help file and looking at the few tutorials that were out there in DVDs and yeah. there was a couple of magazines launching a couple of things that was the minimum like I there used to be a couple of magazines that had a lot of tips and tricks and I it was a lot of times it was just like like trial and error you know you would try things and then if it didn't work you would do it again <laughs> I think that oh, was yeah. kind of like <laughs> that was kind of the way I did it you know and yeah After there was, was no tutorials my, online no no on After Effects was definitely my first thing you know like After Effects was my big thing my first one yeah uh, but yeah I, 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 I quickly understood that Portugal was not the place because remember I, I was very uh, uh, obsessed with ILM I was very obsessed with the mill right I really wanted to work at the mill, so so that was one of because I loved their commercials, you know, back in the day, uh, and also the work they did on Gladiator. Um, what's your, so I, yeah? What's a commercial that you that strike? Do you remember like one of the first things you saw from the mill? Yeah, those 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 commercials they have from uh, every time they had the World Cup every year. Oh, you know, they yeah. would have these massive commercials. I remember very clearly this commercial where it, the the players were fighting against devils from oh from, yeah from hell. With yeah, dust yeah, and right. stuff, I think. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, it, then I think Ronaldo shoots the ball, and then the the devil breaks down, or something like that. Yeah. So I will never, I'll never forget those commercials. And I kind of went and tried <laughs> to see where they came from, you know. And they were all coming from the mill. And back then, this was '99 when the mill won the Oscar for the Gladiator, which was also a big thing back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so I, I left Portugal. I left Portugal. I couldn't really go to the, to Britain because. Um, Back then, on the night, on the on the year to early year two thousands, I had a lot of pets. You know, I had three cats and one dog, and you couldn't come to Britain without doing quarantine, like uh, two months quarantine with the pets. Oh, really? I didn't really want wanted my pets to go through that horrible ordeal, so I kind of like started sending my showreel everywhere. And this is the biggest advice I'll give to anyone watching here that if they want to work in visual effects. I didn't send my showreel to two or three places. I sent my showreel to literally hundreds of places. And this was a VHS tape and a DVD for some places that accepted the DVD, of course. Yeah. There was no online presence, so you couldn't really send a Vimeo link. That didn't exist. So, um, so, so a I lot sent to hundreds of A lot of, places, of energy yeah. is sending, that, sending all that out. And oh, yeah. Well, I, I would go to the post office and I would send like like 20 at a time. You know, it was very expensive as well. I had to like make the DVDs. I would have to print the DVDs, you know, and send it over. And 
And then I got like five or six responses, you know, a couple of companies in Germany, a couple of companies in Sweden. I sent it all, all over Europe and I ended up getting hired uh, through Skype. You know, I had a Skype call. Uh, oh, it wasn't Skype. Sorry, it was uh, Hotmail. It wasn't Hotmail. It was Messenger or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. Skype didn't exist yet. <laughs> so we did the call and, and they liked me and they liked my showreel, so they hired me. So I, I ended up going to Sweden to work as an After Effects artist on this kind of animation studio called Animec, which doesn't exist anymore. But, okay, but, yeah. uh, so I went there, spent a few years there, worked as an After Effects artist for a while, then kind of started working as an art director. Uh, on that company as well. We did a lot of corporate films. We did a lot of music videos. And then finally, the, the, the quarantine closed in, in Britain, you know, and, and it wasn't necessary to have quarantine anymore. As soon as that happened, I just moved immediately to Britain, you know. Um, and that was already, that was 12 years ago when I moved to Britain uh, yeah. after spending many times, many years as an art director on that company in Sweden. While I was on that company, I was already starting to like direct at least the artistic side of things, and I was already getting quite a few awards. I was already getting a lot of projects there going. So when I went to the to the to Britain, uh, you know, then I became a freelancer, like most people are in Britain. Like I started jumping from company to company, really. Um, yeah. You know, uh, working as a composer at Nexus, you know, working as a composer at Jellyfish Pictures, you know, working as a composer at the Mill as well as a freelancer. Um, and also did some work at, for the BBC. Just would jump around from studio to studio uh, so as a as a composer. Yeah. What's what's the life of a composer like? I mean, I have a lot of friends who do it, but I personally rarely have ever like worked. A, I mean, besides it, in the studio that I kind of grew up in, you know, quote unquote, um, haven't actually had the opportunity to see different studios and different pipelines like. So yeah. kind of curious what, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure you learn a lot and every studio does things a little bit differently or is there a sort of unified kind of yeah. work, uh, uh, workflow that you found between those studios? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely they're very different. You know, some of them would be much more focused in 2D, others much more focused in 3D and they would have their own tools, their own pipelines, you know, give an example, like at, at Nexus, for example. Most of it, it was based in 3D Studio Max and V-Ray and Nuke comping yeah. and doing 3D. And they had like a Windows-based uh, workstations. So the pipeline was running on Windows. They had a Windows server. Everything was running on Windows. Um, I, I think it was Vista or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, and this was like early 2010s or something like that when I did that. Um, and then, for example, at, at the opposite spectrum, the mill has a complete Linux-based uh, uh, pipeline. And they literally, the whole company was running XSI at the time. That was their main render engine. Hmm. Uh, they did some Maya with Mental Ray, but then, of course, when XSI was killed off, like, unfortunately, the company kind of shifted quite a lot to Udini, um, and they... They were the first company to use Arnold as well in production. So we oh, were using okay, yeah. Arnold. We were using Arnold Beta. It wasn't even a version. Hmm. Um, so, so the, yeah, the mill has like a very dedicated pipeline where there's a complete folder structure construction. There's a complete management of shots. There is a complete, a very uh, set in stone naming convention, which you can't even deviate. It doesn't even let you deviate. Right, right. If you, it's if like you everything type is automated. Wrong, yeah, everything. If you type something wrong, it just doesn't let you. You know, so yeah. so it's 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 a very different aspect from a Nexus, which is much smaller and much different. You know, so so. Um, but yeah, like that. That's kind of like I started working through these companies. Um, I think I think 
I'll, I'll say one thing to the audience. Like, I think I was incredibly lucky uh, because I think I arrived in London. This was in 2008 when I arrived. This was exactly the perfect moment for me to arrive, you know, because I, the companies were just about to finish off with Shake. You know, I, I was using Shake in Sweden for a while. Shake, mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, know it's uh, uh, the visual effects compositing application before Nuke. It was like earlier. It, it was actually from a company called Nothing Real, and then it was purchased by Apple, and then Apple kind of killed it off. Yeah. Um, so Shake was the biggest thing in London, really, and I was using Nuke in Sweden because Sweden companies usually tend to buy the latest tech so they bought Nuke right away when it was available so I started using Nuke with Nuke 4 mm. I've been using Nuke now for 16 years you know so sorry 15 15 years so I was very lucky because I was doing production in Nuke for three years already when I came to London and when I got to London no one used Nuke you know no one knew Nuke everyone was just using Shake and then Apple killed Shake and then the rug was taken out of the of, of the legs of everyone, and everyone's like desperate to start shifting everything to Nuke, and hardly anyone knew Nuke, you know. Yeah. So I was like in the perfect place because then I, because I was one of the few people that had a lot of experience with Nuke, I started then being hired as a teacher to teach Nuke at Scape. I started becoming a freelancer everywhere to te to 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 go through companies and. To, uh, kind of show them how to implement Nuke. Uh, I was one of the few because you see, Nuke before it was sold by the Foundry. The only way for you to use Nuke was if you worked at Digital Domain, and so anyone else that didn't work right. at Digital Domain, they would never be able to even have access to the software. So I think I was incredibly lucky to arrive at the city exactly in that time, and and that's kind of why they hired me as the head of Nuke because I was one of the few artists that had extensive experience in compositing because of After Effects and Shake, but also new Nuke, you know? So then it became, when I came into the mill, a lot of people were still using Shake, so we kind of transitioned the company into Nuke and, and you know, and kind of built the department because when I got there, the department was only like five or six people and, and ultimately it grew to like 30 people, that department, you know? It became much bigger, you know? So I'm curious just because it's, it's a good tip for people who are starting out now. Um, do you, so like to kind of my take on it is basically what you're saying is it's always good to like look around, try to find new tools that maybe are not widely used and, and maybe you're going to ride kind of a, a new wave with that yeah. tool and that can help yeah. you kind of, yeah. do you so, still so look around are, yourself and like try to look, look for new tools or do you have any I do, I do. And I, could be? And I, I think, I think there's two sides of this coin. Like, like, first of all, I think people should really become like, let me put it this way. Like, I think everyone should be much more software agnostic than they are. And I think that's one of the key features of being an artist these days, especially now after working for 20 years, I feel like I'm completely agnostic. I can really try to use anything. And I think that's my approach to everything. You know, if I need to open After Effects, I do. If I need to open Fusion, I do. If I need to open Nuke, I do. If I need to open any other application, that's fine. Because the important thing people need to understand is that... Uh, Knowing the software is is just a little piece of it, you know, like yeah. clicking around is so easy and you can really teach anyone to click around. What you can teach very easily, which is harder to teach, is to do a, a good shot or to do good lighting or to good, do a good composition. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, like I, I kind of like rode the wave that I think came from my art background, you know, becoming... Because I had a fine arts degree as a master's, like 
I felt like I knew a lot about composition, color. I knew a lot about like how to make a good image, and I knew a lot about photography. And that really has helped on my career. So obviously, I, I feel like people should focus on those core aspects of their career. They should right. focus on learning color instead of spending too much time learning the shortcuts of Maya. You know, so I think those yeah, are the think, key things. You know, totally. No, but having said that, what happened to me was incredibly lucky because the 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 Usually, softwares don't really change that much, uh, but Nuke was really a turning point, you know, because before Nuke, you had After Effects, and After Effects is a layer-based compositor, um, and Nuke is a node-based compositor, and the philosophy of working has really shifted with Nuke. When you had Shake, which was also noded, and then you had Nuke with nodes as well, it really changed the dynamic of how to operate and how to make a shot and how to experiment in visual effects. It's very, it's a very experimental application. So I think not only I was lucky because I learned Nuke very early on, but I think I was lucky because I was doing node compositing. I think it could have happened any other way. If it was Shake, it would have been also the same. If it was Fusion, it was yeah. already the same. I think the shift had happened from layer to nodes, and that's when that shift happened around the early 2000s, you know? And I think I was very lucky. But to answer your question, I definitely think people need to look around for the new techniques and way of working, for sure. For example, I'll give an example. Right now, I am incredibly excited with Unreal 5, and I'm yeah. cre incredibly excited to see how Unreal 5 is kind of going to potentially change the landscape. Not, not the software, you know, because Unreal 5 is just another 3D application. Right. Uh, what changes with Unreal 5 is the speed of iteration, which I think will change the industry forever, where you will have more time to create a really awesome shot because you don't have to wait for the renders. And yep. you can actually iterate faster and faster. So for me, I'm not saying people should look into Unreal 5 specifically, but I definitely think people should be looking into real-time engines, you know? Yep. And even if they don't look at real-time engines, they should be looking at GPU-accelerated engines so that they can at least do it faster. You know, that that's, for example, why I've chosen on my company, I use Redshift, I don't use Arnold, you know, because I, I just prefer to be faster. I prefer to have iterations. I use Octane, there. so, I mean... Yeah, I use Octane, so it's the same kind of principle. And I think, so I think Redshift is probably yeah. the next <laughs> thing for... Yeah, so I, I, think, I think Redshift, I see it popping out, popping yeah. in and out everywhere, and I think it is truly getting there, and it's truly starting to become a competition to Arnold, really, to be honest. Um, wow. But Unreal is really bringing things into another spectrum, of course. But um, I think... Uh, so I guess I guess... Maybe it will never happen again, what happened to me, but but I feel like if you are always on the cusp and always looking around yourself and seeing what is the next possible big thing, it is important for you because there's so many artists, you know, it's there's so much competition. So even if you know the software really well, you also have to have some luck. It's, yeah. it's not just being a good artist. It's also having being lucky and being in the correct place, I think, as well. That helps a lot as well. Yeah, I mean, I the only thing I wanted to add is like, you know, I came from a different background. I have a warm place in my heart for people who start from the tools as opposed to starting from the craft or from the from the foundations, yeah. like the art foundations. So I never went to art school until after I was already proficient in uh, at least one or two softwares. And I yeah. know I know how, you know, People get motivated by different things. I feel like if I had started with uh, the fundamentals of art, I probably would have been 
well, it depends on my teachers, of course, and, you know, the, the experience that I had, but I might have been bored a lot faster, you know, I might have, like, uh, mm-hmm. been uh, sort of just kind of fed up with, with, uh, with, with physical materials, you know, really want to sit in the computer and, and start to, like, because I also started, you know, looking at Steven Spielberg films, you know, Jurassic Park and uh, Terminator 2 and seeing all those amazing yeah. visual effects. That was kind of what, I, what drew me in the first place. And by the time I started to study it, I was, I guess, a bit a bit younger than you. So I already had a computer and I, I had a 3D software at my disposal, of course, a pirated copy when I was like 12 years old or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the tools were there right in front of me. And it took me probably about eight years after, you know, later that I basically was like, huh, you know, maybe I should actually... St- you know, study a little bit about the fundament, yeah. the, the fundaments, you know, the, the, the yeah. art rules and stuff. And I, I can't stress how important that is and, and how much of a difference it is when someone actually knows those things versus not knowing and just knowing how to use the tool. Of course, it's I know, a, I know, I know. Um, and that's the thing, like, it's, there's nothing wrong with doing it later. Nothing wrong with that at all. Like, I think it doesn't really matter if you do it before or after. Yeah. I did it before because back then on my time, there was no other way. Like, the, most companies would force you to have an art degree. That doesn't right. happen anymore, you know. No company now has on the requirements that you have a art degree. And that doesn't exist anymore. That kind of ended in the early, early 2000s. And uh, but learning, like, I, I, I say this to my students all the time, like, and also to my artists, even at the mill, I used to say this. I would see a lot of talented artists really knowing how to do a shot, but then they would fail miserably at bouquet or depth of field, or they would right. fail miserably at composition or not noticing the shadows were wrong. And I was like, oh, come on, man. You don't know anything about shadows. You don't know. You don't even know. Or people would ask, oh, what is this F-stop thing? What is this? Like, I, I just feel to me, like, personally... That is really a big, big problem in the industry. And I feel if you are a person that is doing lighting or if you're a person that's doing compositing, if you're finishing any shot, either right. you're a lighter, a compositor, or a, a colorist, you know, you need to know photography because that's what we're doing. Like you exactly. are in the 3D application mimicking a camera, trying to mimic what the camera does, trying to mimic what the lens does, trying to mimic the movement. If you don't have any understanding of how f-stops works or shutter speeds works or even a camera weight works or even how, what a dolly camera is or what a steady cam is, if you don't know any about that, like how are you going to make the shot look real? You're never going to make it real. You yeah. know? So I think it's incredibly important for people to do that. And it's funny that lately... I, every two weeks, I do a stream on Twitch about that, about the best books that I would recommend right. for visual effects artists. So I've I've done two streams. I'm doing the first stream this weekend, um, and I am now on chapter one, which is photography books, and then chapter two will be visual effects books. I'm kind of going through. I have hundreds of books of visual effects, of color, of of uh, of uh, you know, both from my university time, but also books I bought now uh, from cinematographers, from right. directors, from all sorts of people. And every time I do this stream, like I always have like a couple of hundred people watching the stream, and there's always so many people on the chat asking, "Oh, why do I have to read books? Uh, b- book? I just want to know Maya. Like, why do I have to read the book?" And I was ah. like, "Okay, you're not getting it. You're not getting it, mate. Like." You know Maya, it will be pointless if you know Maya right. because once Maya goes away and something else comes along, what are you going to do then? Yep. You know, that's the problem, that's the issue. Like if they don't if people don't understand those core fundamental skills, they will never be able to navigate to another software. That's the key, you know. It's for yep. you to learn those things so that you can just easily 
Because learning the software is easy. That's the easy part of all of this, you know? Yeah, well, and I think people need to also, every person is in a different place in their journey and they need to understand that even though it's hard right now, once you've sort of climbed that hill and you topped that, uh, you know, that, that, that obstacle, looking back, it's not going to seem that hard and, and it's going to be, you know, you're going to be a little less heavy on your feet, you know, like it yeah, really yeah. is. I remember I was on 3D Studio Max for many, many years. I'm still using it as my main kind of 3D tool and I use After Effects and I, even though I played around with Nuke, I've always wanted to, to transfer, but I've all, because I'm working alone and I do a lot of motion graphics, it's kind of, After Effects always seems to be my, um, my easy fallback plus all the plugins that I already have that, you know, it's like, of course, you know. Excuses, excuses, I know, but... Um... No, no, it's not excuses at all. Like, I've been on your situation. You know, when I, when I decided to shift to Nuke, it took me forever, and it, I just kept trying Nuke and, and, and also Shake, and I was like, ah, no, I'm going to just go back to After Effects. And I would keep doing this. It was only, ultimately, it was when I made the decision, okay, this is a project I have to do. I'm going to uninstall After Effects. And I did that. I uninstalled wow. After Effects. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I'm not going to install it, and I'm going to finish this job. And I did. It was incredibly painful. I spent a month hitting with my head against the wall. But I've learned Nuke so much more on that right. month than I've tried for months and months in before. And after a while, after a few months, I didn't never open Nuke again, After Effects again. You know? So I think, I think it's... If you really want to shift to another application, just need to force yourself into it and uninstall it from the computer. <laughs> yeah, my, my way of doing that with Maya and also Nuke was actually to hire, to because I already got to the point where I was hiring other uh, artists and other studios to help me with uh, with jobs. And I just decided to hire a Maya studio, for instance, for like uh, some previous job that I did. And uh, and I forced myself to basically, I, I, I had to be able to open Maya and... and do you know yeah. do changes and do revisions and help them and stuff so of course i didn't i don't know how to model in maya and i don't know how to do all yeah. these like specific tasks but i know how to open a scene and move the camera around and create keyframes and you know play yeah. with the uh with a track editor and same thing with nuke i you know i worked with it's funny because i know you've you were working with trace sometimes in india i think you mentioned even yeah, uh, I, I even mean, traveling I, I, out there i worked yeah, I worked. I worked, worked a lot with them on, at the mill, of course, because the mill yeah. used to just use Trace for every single thing that they would roto. And I did travel a few times. Yeah, I did. So, so and yeah. they use Nuke, and you know, sometimes. But I also work with other comp, uh, other uh, studios that also use Nuke solely for for compositing. So I know enough to be able to open a, a script on my computer and uh, back, you know, reverse engineer it and and do you know small yeah. changes here and there. But it's a totally you know. Totally yeah. different beast when you have to start a shot on your own, of course. Yeah. But it, it's, um, it's funny, like we were discussing this thing about the core skills and about extra stuff like artistic and photography. This what, the, Another thing I would say to the audience here is that, that the reason also why you want to learn those extra things is because, think about this. Like, are you really going to become a, a, if you've decided to be a composer, let's say that, that you decided to be a composer or you decided to be a lighting artist, are you going to be a lighting artist or a composer until you're, 70 because that's probably not going to happen so you need to kind of start thinking in a more broad stroke you know yeah. like i'm the only reason why i became a vfx supervisor at the mill and the only reason why i am a vfx supervisor at sony and i've done vfx provision for ubisoft i've done vfx provision for five dot smoke for a bunch of companies as an on-set supervisor 
The only reason I did that was because of my knowledge of photography and cameras and lenses right. and because of all the extra knowledge and knew a bit of 3D and knew a bit of lighting. That extra knowledge is the one that is going to give you access to other job opportunities and, and also evolve as an artist because... If you just stick with one single thing, you chances are you're going to be doing it for a very long time. And I'm not saying there's a plan. You know, I don't really have a plan. You know, I'm just like learning as I go and, and I kind of keep learning new and new things. And who knows where I'm going to end up in a couple of years. You know, uh, right now I'm, I've been mostly working as a director for cinematics and games and I've been mostly been on set doing things. But maybe in five years I'll be you know in Unreal or maybe in 10 years I'll be doing something else it is a, a very changing landscape and learning new treats and new techniques is really something that can not only make your career fresh but also allow you to evolve and to grow because if you're even in a company if you don't know new things you'll never grow inside of it you'll never become a lead or you'll never become a sequence lead and then you will never become a supervisor and yeah that's the thing you know so i mean that's uh i remember when i was working at an animation company i actually applied to two schools because i was like i was 25 and, and i and i felt like i hit a, a glass ceiling I, I was already a cg supervisor at the company um, I built their pipeline. I was, you know, doing, working together with directors on sort of, we were working on, a, on an animation series at the time. Um, and I felt, okay, the next thing I want to do is just direct. And I, and I've tried a few times in, through in, within the com the company to get some directing jobs, to do some original, uh, shorts that we, you know, in animation. And, um, it just kept hitting that glass ceiling where it's just a, there's always something more important going on. There's always these inter, you know, uh, external projects and external deadlines and stuff. So I decided to go to school and I applied to art school uh, for animation. And then at some, and, and I didn't actually, uh, I didn't get in. They didn't accept me for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I was, it, it was almost a blessing because I was like, well, actually I'd, I kind of want to do something completely different. Uh, and for me, something completely different at that point was to study filmmaking because it was, it had nothing to do with animation, nothing to do with, well, you know, at that point when you went to film school, there was no relation to animation with the exception that it's the same thing, only different uh, uh, techniques. But uh, film school basically had only, the closest thing it had was an editing uh, department. Um, yeah. Yeah. but getting into film school really opened up, a, you know, this amazing kind of, uh, new, uh, new track in my brain for exactly what you're talking about, you know, for, to, to think about lenses and think about the practicalities yeah. of making, a, you know, it, it kind of trickles into everything you do in 3d when you realize, you know, cameras, they have weight and they move in a certain way. Yeah. And even though, yeah. And even though nowadays a lot of films kind of kind of threw that out of the window because they have the ability to move the camera around and you know weightlessly yeah. and do all those things, you know, I still feel like it's it's sort of you know subtextually when you watch a film and you feel like the camera has weight to it, you know, it, it makes you appreciate the film better, you know, or something. But you see, so. you see, I actually think that it's actually going backwards again because if you think about it, like the way. And this is also because of most of the visual effects supervisors in the industry right now. They are very big fans of actual reality and not yeah. just random cameras like we used to have on the year 2000s. And um, I, I do think we're going quite backwards now. We, we, no, not backwards in a bad way, but in a good way. Like people are now very adamant about weight of lenses. They're very adamant about 
if we're going to move a camera, it's going to be on a dolly, you know, right. it's going to be like on tracks, you know, if we're going to move a camera, it's going to be an actual, a physically accurate uh, tripod, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like that's happening a lot. Most visual right. effects companies have built rigs, complete replicas of rigs of cameras, you know, because they've had like workshops with cinematographers. They had workshops yeah. with camera people, which is excellent, you know, and that's yeah. why you see so much realism in cinema. And if you look at, if you look back at, the last um, four or five Oscars for visual effects, you start really seeing that in 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 the Oscars. You know, you start seeing okay. Last time it was First Man, which is a complete photoreal depiction of the Apollo uh, land right. moon landing, and it has nothing but realism. The neg just made like it's perfect. Mm -hmm. If you look back a year before. Um, Ex Machina, Ex Machina, like a perfect, accurate, photoreal robot walking around with clothing and and with skin and yeah. and uh, and everything. You know, if you if you look back, you know, realism is is a big big thing now. And even if you look at you know backwards projection, like you see on the Mandalorian, you saw it also in First Man as well. We're kind of like going full circle. We are actually starting to go a bit back into what we used to do before, you right. know, which was more based in reality than everything else because, you know, back projection was real. There was a person there. There was a car there. There would be projections around the person so that you would have lighting interactions and everything. And now, of course, obviously, we've updated the technology of back projection right. with really good, like, you know, panels with, like, 5,000 luminance and, like, things like that so that you can actually have pure HDR backgrounds instead of just like the normal ones. And I think that's really going to change the industry forever. And, and that's why you're, you're now seeing those Oscars for First Man, those Oscars for, uh, you know, Ex Machina. Those, those films are now starting to go into a new phase where I think photorealism is starting to happen. But photorealism can only, only really happen when you start making things in 3D, compositing and CG and everything in lighting accurate right. that means you're replicating everything and this is happening not even just on uh, full cg realistic films even on animation you know i i last year when i was on an event i met uh, eric smith which is a director of photography at pixar right and I I we we had dinner together he was he was doing a he was doing a talk after me and he also recently did another talk on Twitch, which I, which I saw. And if you look at his talks and you look at his work that he's done with Incredibles 2 and the work that he's done there, you can kind of see that everything he does is based in reality. Everything he does is based on weighted cameras. And even as he has even built inside of the 3D applications they use at Pixar, they even build like flaps and reflectors. And even like, you know, when you wow. put in front of the lights, you put these kind of like... Um, little rigs of, 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 of wires and cut pieces so it disperses oh, yeah, the light. Yeah. He, he, he literally built an entire kit set from a director of photography, you know, with C-stands, with, with black flags, with the reflectors, silver reflectors, gold reflectors, little pointed lights. He's basically trying to mimic what usually you do on set. Right. And it's incredibly nice to watch. Like, if you look at Incredibles 2, it, it just looks... Of course, it's still an animation. It's not supposed to be photoreal, but it has all that kind of world of 
real lighting and photography that really brings it up. You know, it makes it so beautiful. And I'm sure he takes like the whole lighting department and kind of runs them through like practical cinematography workshops and stuff. Because I mean, I I think that was one of the things that was was so missing in my initial experience was like just being on set and seeing how cinematographers work. And I, even when I was in uh, my first film school in Israel, I, you know, they had a pretty decent uh, cinematography uh, program, but when I came to LA and I studied at AFI, that was like a game changer. Just of course, you know, seeing of how they do everything and, and having, you know, real name cinematographers come in and give us workshops yeah. and seeing that. Um, in a way, even though I studied directing, not cinematography, I feel like I've learned a lot more in the cinemato- from the cinematography uh, students that, uh, that went there. Then. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that's what I really want to emphasize. Like anyone that wants to be a lighter, they need to be a cinematographer. You know, that's the thing. Like that is so crucial. And you start seeing this popping up everywhere. You know, look at Pixar, look at DreamWorks, look at Blur. They have directors of cinematography. You know, they have DOPs. Obviously, these are digital DOPs, but they are DOPs nonetheless, you know. Yeah. So, but, and you also, you had this kind of early break as a director somehow that you didn't expect to have when you were 18. Um, Yeah. Did you ever uh, think of like doing a full transition into uh, being like getting off the the, the box, you know, being outside, being on sets? uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, uh, you mean to be to become a director full time? You mean? Yeah. Have you ever thought of that? Or I, I have, of course. But I think obviously, you know, it, it's it it's a bit like what I said before. There's luck and there's also bad luck as well. I think that I was in in one way I was lucky that I was pretty sufficient in visual effects and I was lucky to be in the correct place in the correct time and right. became really kind of big in the visual effects industry, especially after being at the mill for so long. Um, and that also became my downfall because obviously the more you work in these companies, the less you do for yourself, right. you know, and that's one of the reasons I left because I, I kind of like, I, I was directing in Portugal. I was doing music videos. They were crappy things. You know, it was crappy music videos and crappy films, but at least it was my thing, you know, right. and I was kind of building it up. But then when I went to Sweden, I kind of stopped doing it because I couldn't. I had, didn't have time. I had to be at the company the whole time. Right. And when I came to freelancing in London, I didn't have the time. The only moment I had the time was there was a moment that I convinced some of my colleagues at the mill to do the 48-hour challenge in London, you know, so that we would do a short film in 48 hours. Right. Which, by the way, do not do. It's the most horrible thing <laughs> in the world to do something in 48 yeah, hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. It's, it almost killed me. Anyway. So I kind of like, you know, decided to leave the mill, but obviously there's always this balance. And I'm not rich. I didn't, I come from a very poor background. You know, I can't really sustain myself or my family can sustain me while I pursue a director's career. That's really not going to happen. You know, a lot of people are lucky to have families that can support them and they can kind of like do pilots and do directions and do those things. I never really had that luck. And so because I had to work for a living and and really pay the bills, I, I kind of... Started doing, you know, I left the mill because I wanted to direct more. Started directing trailers and started directing little cinematics and started directing like little TV commercials. And obviously that's not really directing, directing because that's not film. You know, I'm not doing a film, but I don't have, I still have my eye on the prize. You know, I'm, I'm still doing my short films. I've directed a short film a couple of years ago, which I'm still finishing right now. Oh, cool. um, and I'm, and I'm, I have a new short film up and coming as well. And I'm, 
I'm slowly getting there. Uh, but obviously, my life has changed so much now, especially with YouTube and with Twitch and with my streamings and my teaching as well. Which kind of like, or now I'm on a phase now that kind of have to make a decision. Okay, should I pursue this thing of doing commercials and direct those kind of things in a professional way? And may maybe, maybe if I'm lucky, it's a one in a million chance, maybe I'll do a film. You know, that, yeah. that's kind of the way I see it. Especially because I don't live in Hollywood, I don't live in LA, I live in London. So it's obviously it's going to be even harder to become a director if you don't live in LA. Always, everyone always telling me this, oh, if you want to be a director, you have to be in LA. Okay, well, I'm, I want to, I don't want to go to LA. <laughs> so, oh. so, but, but that's fine. Like, you know, but, but so I'm kind of on a crossword. I'm like, okay, should I pursue this more and do a showreel of directing of what I've done so far? Because I, I do have, quite a lot of jobs that I've won awards and everything. You know, I had like, I directed the in-game cinematics of Homefront. I directed Vermintide. I directed a bunch of really cool yeah. cinematics and I'm sure I can do a showreel, but because of all the work I'm doing online now on YouTube, on Kickstarter and Twitch, I'm kind of seeing maybe a second chance for me. I'm kind of seeing, okay, maybe what I should do is actually do short films for my, for my online platforms yeah. because... I kind of look at this, you know, I have all the equipment myself. I have lenses, I have cameras. Oh, I, I can, you can see. see some of them on the yeah. background here. I have quite a lot of equipment Beautiful. myself. It's very, it's very pro-consumer equipment. Obviously, I don't have a red camera. I don't have like pro-consumer, but it's, it's material enough. I have enough lenses, enough cameras, and enough equipment to do what I want, which is like, you know, some cool short films and some film sequences. And... That's kind of what I'm kind of debating now. Maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing more Kickstarters. I'm going to, since they were so successful, I had three of them already. Maybe I'm going to start doing more shots for my students. And then at the same time, I can do the shots for my students. But I also can, can do my own films. And that kind of started a few years ago. I used to be a teacher on a in, a, in a school in Sweden called Campus I-12. I was teaching there for 10 years in and out while I was at the mill as well. So I would yeah. travel there and teach there. And it's kind of started there, like where every year they had to do a project, a final project uh, 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 with the whole class. You know, we were 30 people. And it started there, like I, I, I filmed two short films with them, you know, which was That's a really cool. nice experience. Yeah. It was a nice experience because I directed the short film, did the script, and then they did the VFX and, and I did the editing. Like we kind of worked together as if, if it was a, a real company. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I, I, I really loved that. It was so enjoyable to do those films. And, and I kind of feel like maybe I should uh, dust off my scripts and actually film them with the equipment I have, with the actors I know and the people I know here in London. Obviously, now I can't film anything because no one can leave the house. <laughs> but but when, once we can leave, once we can leave, maybe I should do those things. And then that becomes material for my online courses. It becomes material for my YouTube channel. And then I'm happy because I can have both best of both worlds. And maybe who knows? Maybe I'm gonna slowly leave the VFX industry because I kind of won't won't need to be on it anymore. You know? It reminds so me. I'm, I'm kind yeah, of, it reminds me a bit of Colin Levy. He was in my podcast a few episodes back. He, <clears throat> mm -hmm. which uh, he got his whole kind of start as a director because he's uh, also because he picked up a kind of a random tool that not a lot of people use, Blender. And yeah, uh, yeah. and he got to direct stuff for the Blender Foundation, and so he, and because yeah. it's kind of an open source uh, community, they got a lot of help from uh, from the community. Basically, this kind of open source uh, uh, production productions yeah. where he's yeah. I mean that's that's 
that's a great idea. I mean, and if it seems like you've yeah, already done I, it I before. Feel, I f- yeah, I feel, like, I feel like there's a chance there because for me, I, I recently made a YouTube video about this and I, I, I really believe that, that there are other methods of income and other methods of creating things. For me, especially... Oh, yeah, from two weeks ago, I think I... You know, I, I saw it. Yeah, you saw that video maybe. Like so so I I feel like we're living in in fantastic times, you know, like yeah. we're living in you know, I I wish, you know, I wish I was younger, I wish I was uh, you know 20 now and I could start now when we are now living on this time because it's fantastic, you know, you have like Kickstarter, you have Patreon, you have like YouTube, you have all these platforms which allows you to build an audience and I I I feel like, you know, as long as you can f- as long as you can get like about a thousand people to two thousand people that are following your work, you're gonna be fine. You know, right. and I—that's what I'm starting to understand now. That maybe, perhaps, instead of wasting my time doing commercials for some random company or commercials for some random client, maybe that's the time now to, for me to do commercials for, uh, stuff for myself and for my audience because. They follow me because they like my work. They follow me because they like my streams. And so if I'm doing my own work, it's even more genuine. And then I, it gives me the ability to share the assets and I can share the footage and right. I can give them the stuff as well and also teach them along the way. I kind of feel like now this is the perfect time to do this because people, I, I know I'm not after doing a film for being watched by a million people. If I have like a couple of thousand people watching, I'm very happy already. And I think that's where we live right now. We're living on this like kind of micro climate where people have micro audiences. I think that's what Twitch is all about. You know, like you have someone on Twitch earning a living and they have like, you know, 500 subscribers and maybe 2000 followers. And that person makes a living from that. It's enough money from them for them to live. And they are creating things they like and they're just streaming and doing things. It's a lot of work, of course, but but it, it also has other, other other advantages. You know, now that I now that my YouTube channel is starting to become so big, I'm starting to have sponsors. I'm starting to have companies wanting to pay my channel so that I can promote certain things. And it starts to kind of like grow and it starts to become a business of its own. So I'm I'm definitely you know David, I'm definitely on a crossroad for sure. You know, like I've been working for 20 years as I told you like I could always go back to the mill at right. all any times. Uh, you know, they they always send me messages once in a while like, "Oh, do you want to come back?" Like <laughs> and I I could always go back. You know, Framestore also always emails me and I, "Oh, could you want to come back?" And I, no, no. I I at the moment I'm kind of like should I go back to production and you know, do these really cool films and really cool commercials and really high-profile jobs, or I'm not 41, should I actually work for my jobs? You know, they, they're not as cool, but they are my jobs. You know, yeah. I, I feel like that's the feeling I'm having right now, and maybe it's a it's maybe it's a, a really big mistake. Maybe I should go back to the mill. Maybe I should have never left the mill in the first place. But what, what, uh, where I kind do you of draw, like, <clears throat> you know. How do you define the difference between what you consider your job <clears throat> well, I mean, I know the difference. The difference is your job is yeah. clients come to you as opposed to going to the mill for the things, right? And, and so the same yeah. clients are probably not going to come to you for something they go to the mill for. Um, yeah. But is that is that a scenario? That is that a, an actual scenario? Because I did, I have clients who came to the mill first. I mean, of course, they it was a very short endeavor when they when they got the uh, the bill or you know the the quote. And then they came to me, and clearly, you know, it was a, it was never going to be a mill project, but um, yeah, yeah, I've done that as well. I've I've even I've even I'm very proud of actually even even winning winning jobs against the mill for sure. Like I I still do productions jobs. I still do production, but I, what I'm 
what I'm seeing now is that this is the time for you to like, this is the, the birth of multiple small companies, I think, you right. know, studios and, and companies that are made of five or 10 people, you know, like my company, we're only five at the moment and we can grow and scale really easily. Like we've had a cinematic a couple of years ago where we had to have 20 people on it. And we did, we got 20 people and we did it remotely. Anyway, we have a, a very robust pipeline, which by the way, my pipeline is nothing more than, uh, you know, a representation of what I used to do at the mill. So I, I think if anything, I would always advise anyone to always at least once in their lifetime, try to work in a big studio right. because it will teach you so much, you know, about pipeline. It will teach you about deadlines. It will teach you about professionalism. It will also teach you how to work in a team. And the most important part, it will bring you a lot of network, a lot of contacts. Yep, and important. still to this day, uh, most of my clients are older clients I had at the mill, you know, because I, I, I was the head of department. I had a suite for myself at the mill. So I had clients all day long there for eight hours. And so a lot of my clients these days are clients that I brought with me, you know, and a lot of the artists that I still work on my team, they are artists from the mill as well. So working in a big company really has a lot of advantages. And my pipeline is also very similar to the pipeline of the mill, minus the redshift swap to Arnold, right. you know, so... So everything else is very similar. So I, I think, obviously, I could keep continue working as a VFX company. I could continue working on these jobs like I'm that I've been doing lately with uh, cinematics and games. But my my thing right now is that I'm starting to see that that I can probably earn enough money from my Kickstarters and I can earn enough money from my Twitch and my YouTube to actually leave production altogether wow. and only do my own projects, which are production anyway, because if I do them, I'll give an example. The last Kickstarter that I did, which was for the Nuke composting course. My Nuke composting course is an ongoing project. You know, I, I've been building it for two years now. It has 150 classes already. It's about 80 hours long. You know, it's very long, it's very big. And I, because I have so much good relationships with the mill, I even managed to get footage from the mill into the course. So my students have footage from the mill to test and to try and to use. I also have footage from Deep Silver. I have footage from Ubisoft. I have like proper assets yeah. for people to use on their course. You know, so it's a it's a professional course. But now I'm kind of like starting to look at my assets, and I'm kind of like, okay, now I want to I have I want to have new assets. So I'm kind of. I want to have some stuff done completely in deep composting. I want some stuff done in ACES. I want to have some new assets. So because I'm not at the mill anymore, I can't really get those assets anymore. But what I'm doing now is the last time I funded, I picked up a bunch of money from that funding and I put it aside and I'm going to, and I basically said, okay, I'm going to hire my own VFX team, the team that I always use, you know, the, the VFX supervisor from the mill, the guy that used to be a composter at the mill, like these people, and I'm going to pay them a regular rate to work on these shots and then the result of these shots the cg the composting the editing all of the results of these shots will become my new production shots for the next course i do nice you know? yeah so, so that's what i'm kind of now starting to build you know where i get funding enough so that i can hire the people that are from the industry to make shots for a potential course and Along the way, my plan is to start making short films out yeah. of it, you know. So that, that's that's kind of my plan right now. Um, and that's why I was saying, 
yes, maybe I'll leave production, but it's not really leaving production because I am going to be doing productions. It's just that they're going to be my productions. That's you know? yeah. I mean, I think I love I love what you do, and I and I often think to myself, what if I you know started a Twitch channel and I just showed my screen as as I'm working because I'm also working yeah. on things that a lot of people could find interesting, and the obstacle is usually for me that I'm working on secret stuff that, uh, you know, yeah, uh, the company that wants, you know, that I'm working for <clears throat> probably doesn't want those things surfacing before they're ready. Um, of course. And I could be smart about it and record and wait until th- after the project comes out it's to out. release yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but maybe I'm just, I uh, don't have that much foresight and I'm like, you know, just... <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think that's why, you know, that will never really work. I mean, the, the productions will, like most of the time my clients either say yes or they say no categorically. And that's why I think building, that's why I made that video on YouTube. I, I, I really strongly believe that the, like a lot of us kind of, we went into this industry, right, because we loved films, right? right? We, we came into this industry because we wanted to be artists, we wanted to do films, and we wanted to be filmmakers. And along the way, we kind of forgot. <laughs> and, and it's like we've been like very busy with making all these things and all these clients and all these projects. But I think sometimes we forget that we were supposed to be artists as well. So I feel like now is the perfect time for people to actually create their own things. And... The only people that I see doing that on Twitch, for example, on YouTube, are concept artists. They do that a lot in drawing and and people doing drawings and people, and they actually make a living out of it, uh, especially with ArtStation and especially with with making streams. But I I kind of wish that there was more micro productions, you know, because if you look at the productions done in Hollywood and the productions done in the world, they're all, there's only two types of productions. There's either like the, the 200 million project, you know, like, which is like the Marvel movie or... You have like the really, really super cheap thing that kind of came from an independent studio and kind of it kind of was viral and became big. Yeah. There's nothing in between anymore. And I feel like we are the ones that need to step in to make this in between, especially with the advent of Netflix and the advent of Amazon Prime. And now is the time for us as creators to start making scripts, start to making pitches and start to making low budget productions. Because the low budget productions i'm talking about productions the ones that i used to see when i was younger you know the 5 million pounds like 5 million dollars for for uh, reservoir dogs or uh, you know 11 million dollars for pulp fiction it's unking- it's unthinkable yeah. that it costed 11 million you know yeah. or even like the other day i was watching machete from robert rodriguez and machete which is right, quite recent it's only 10 years old that film costed 12 million. And I was like, how the hell did he even made it in 12 million? Yeah. And it is possible. And I think we have platforms now to sell these productions. And it could be from a number of things. It could be sponsored by uh, companies. It could be sponsored by Kickstarter, together with Indiegogo, together with streams, together with Twitch subscribers. Now I think it's the perfect time to create cool stuff and to create cheaper productions and really kind of basically revolutionize the model because why do you really have to go to through a big studio to become a director? It I don't see it as a viable way to do no, it that's anymore. True. I mean, and to be, I gotta say that for 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 people who who listen and say, well, wait a second, twelve million is quite a lot. Like, so it's not like I have it lying around in my. Of uh, course, of course. I I made a feature for five hundred fifty thousand dollars, 
And yeah, you see, and not that you I see. have that lying around either. I mean, I had a, a distributor that came to me, and it's not like it's the best film. It's probably I I think about it probably like you think about your karate uh, karate film. Yeah, exactly. You're 18. It's probably not that much better, um, but uh, but it's doable. I mean, and I did it in L.A. You know, not even even yeah. in, in a I did it in L.A. And I had equipment that I that I got for. I think I did it in a, in a, in a you know, I was lucky because at the time a lot of there was a lot of runaway productions. Uh, productions left the city, and there's there's all this equipment just lying around, uh, not yeah. being used. So we we were lucky to get a lot of things for dirt cheap. Um, yeah, but it's possible, like you know, and and I think, and I know someone. I have a, a friend who did a film for way less. I mean, and self finance yeah. an entire feature. So. It's one of those things where it's like films. So, I mean, from my experience, from what I've seen, films have a way to to make to to like to come to being when people want to make them. You know, like money exactly. becomes yeah, money exactly. becomes secondary when you're already like you know set in motion and you have people behind you. Um, yeah, you know, it'll happen even if it you know even if you do have to do it over weekends and people do it for you know voluntarily yeah. and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you see. I think this is the generation to do it. We are the people that know the softwares. We, you know, back in my time when I started, you would have to use, like, if I, back in my time, like, you would have to literally be in a company to learn software because the software was only on that company, right. you know, or, you know, only the mill could have a flame suite, you know, because no one could afford right, to have exactly. a flame suite because it was like half a million to buy the software. Now, you know, you can literally do it for free. Like, you can literally use Blender. You can use Neutron, and you're done. Or even Fusion. Fusion is free. Like you can literally do the whole Hollywood type, amazing production using completely free software from, and not to mention Unreal. Unreal is free for creatives. Yeah. It's not even you don't even have to pay. So there's so much more now to do. Like I wish I had it when I was younger. But back then I had to like. But if like I when I first when I first started using Nuke, I bought a Nuke license. It costed me ten thousand dollars. You know, it was like yeah. like just that license. Now I can I can obviously Nuke hasn't really changed price anymore. But you can now get alternatives which are cheaper. So I, I feel like if people want to make a film, now is the time, and they should just like not forget that they they if they went to the industry because they like to be filmmakers, they should. You know, if we had more content going out. Because there, there is the need to content. You see, we're now living on the microclimate where Netflix has, ne like, they have regional versions of everything, you know? Yeah. If you watch Netflix in Britain, you'll see one Netflix. But if you go traveling to Portugal, you'll see another Netflix. And if you go to Spain, you'll see another Netflix. Yeah. And this is so funny to do. Like, I've been traveling a lot these last years because of events, and... I go to I go, I go to Spain and I see like Spanish productions in the Netflix, a bunch of them. I go to Portugal, I see, I see a bunch of Portuguese productions. I go to Germany, I see a bunch of German productions. And so, although some of them kind of cross over and they go to other countries, obviously, yeah. if they are really good, but this is the time to do it oh, because totally. you know because these productions are smaller, they are more niche, they are also because they are more niche and more cheap they have the possibility to be more creative because more risks can be done. Yeah. You can risk things. You can maybe do, you know, like, uh, you know, 
like I did back in the day. You can do a ninja film now, or you can do like a, the first, you know, let me give you an example. You can do the first gay ninja film, you know, like you can do those niche projects, right. or you can do the first comedy about whatever it could be, you know, about some drunk somewhere. Like all these things, the creativity becomes so much more flexible because you don't, you're not controlled by, you know, an IP or a big studio or, because all those companies are, you know, they, they are paying 200 million. They, they need to be sure yeah. the film is going to be successful. And know? I think it's tough when, when you're fixated a bit, when people kind of who, who drew inspiration from big Hollywood pictures and the fact that it, they were like global phenomena, you know, like Jaws and, uh, and Jurassic Park and Star Wars and, and, you know, to kind of come to terms with the fact that the industry is changing. I mean, those movies are, there's fewer of them and you have to, and, and, and when they are made, they're made nowadays in a, in a much different way than they used to, I think. You know, it's, yeah, it's enough exactly. to just see the, the latest blockbusters yeah. to I mean, see they, how... I they mean, they used to be independent movies, you know? Yeah. Like Jaws was an independent movie practically, and, and the budgets were minute and they were super small, and, and those productions were pure filmmaking, you know? And I, I, think, I think sometimes we forget this, and... and Everyone is always complaining about, oh, these superhero movies are so boring. Oh, there's so much uh, uh, Disney Marvel everywhere. Well, it's up to you. You can make more. You can make other things. Right. You know? And I think I, I, I really welcome Netflix on that sense. I, I thought Netflix have been revolutionizing cinema for sure. Like I've, they've been giving so much, so much space for those directors that didn't really have a voice anywhere. You know, those directors that were losing their voices, especially yeah. because they couldn't really afford, they couldn't be picked up by a studio because the studios didn't want to risk 10 million to do a film, you know. And I feel like Netflix is in the perfect place for that because they, they, they can put the 10 million down because they are always going to recoup the cost because they have a subscription base. And, and I guess I go for full circle here yeah. again. It's the same when you're an artist. If you have some kind of following on Twitch or Patreon or or on YouTube, you become like a subscription-based thing as well. It's all about making content and making content from your creative uh, uh, mind so, and also yeah. to have people that like to watch what you do, you know? And to talk on that, I was kind of curious. Both I wanted to ask you about Twitch and the fact that you don't only... You have two things that you share, as far as I know, maybe more, actually. Uh, so you have a, a bunch of kind of series, a uh, series of, you know, showing you at work and, and uh, dissecting uh, your own shots. Sometimes you have a uh, um, showreel sort of uh, commentary. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and you also have... Um, gaming basically uh gaming streams where you uh you just play games and yeah and uh and record yourself how did that come about because that seems totally out of you know completely <laughs> different i was one you know first of all i was wondering if it's the same people who watch the other streams also watch the gaming stuff or uh i mean of, of course there's overlap but i but i Personally, I'd love to yeah. be doing that too because I, I have no time for games. Um, so I'm just fascinated by how did that come? Up? Like, when did you have well, the time for it? And well, I only started I only started streaming a year ago, but my oh. YouTube channel started four five years ago. It's going to be five years this year, um, and the YouTube channel started um, you know when I. I was doing my own productions and I was doing my cinematics for, for uh, Square Enix, for Ubisoft, for all these companies, for Deep Silver. And because I was directing these trailers and cinematics, I was in a very privileged position where I could ask the client, you know, 
Guys, do you mind if I do a YouTube video where I disconstruct this shot? You know, I think my 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 audience, my students would love to see that. And I kind of started like that. And most, uh, most of the games companies kind of said yes. I had a couple of them that said no, but most of them said yes, you know, because for them, you know, it's not their audience. And they know it's any publicity is good publicity. You right. know, if anyone is going to play the game, it's going to be even better for them. So that's why... I think the success of my YouTube channel came from those disconstructions where I was like opening real projects, like real jobs that I've done for, for these cinematics. And I would disconstruct them step by step, showing them how did we do this and how did we do that? And this here, we had a little technique and here we had a little trick. And it kind of kind of blew up my YouTube channel because of that, because, of, because there was no one else doing this content online. And I still don't think there's anyone doing this content because a lot of times you get no from the client. The reason you get no from the client is most of the times people are in low level. You know, it's like right. you can't really be a composer and ask that, you know, because that exactly. you, you're not going to get it. You know, it's also but not yeah, because exactly. I've been the lucky. Levels. You have to exactly. ask your because boss. Been, you have to ask the boss. You have to ask them, exactly. and they just don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. And because I was lucky enough to be either directing it or supervising it. I had direct contact with my client, so I could ask them and, you know, some of them became my friends, you know, we would right. go out and have drinks and I, it's easier for you to say, oh, by the way, I have a YouTube channel, do you mind if I do this? And and they would say yes and, and you know, some of them said no, of course, but yeah. most of them said yes and I think I've been lucky with that. So that's kind of how it started, you know, my YouTube channel started becoming a disconstruction YouTube channel and... And then slowly I kind of started doing other series. You know, I started doing like some tips and tricks on set. I started doing some ticks and trips uh, on Nuke as well. Um, that's how I built my YouTube channel. And right now it's like very, very close to 30,000 subscribers right yeah. now, which... Um, 29 which point is, something. Point one, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so which, is, uh, which is very small for YouTube, I know. Like YouTube is all to the millions and it's incredibly small, but... For nuke composting and visual effects in general, it is incredibly big. Like yeah. I, 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 because if you look at really, for example, if you look at, for example, the Foundry's YouTube channel, they have like seventy thousand. So I, I'm already halfway through to the subscribers of the Foundry. Yeah, and I even have like more views on my videos than the Foundry has on theirs. So it's it's already, it has to do with with the fact that it's a very niche market and. And there's not a lot of people doing visual effects. Uh, people think there's a lot, but there's not. It's 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 a yeah. very small market. You Do know? you can you and, attribute the the rise in following to specific videos? Like which videos were the ones that kind of sort of you saw spikes? I think that yeah, the 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 disconstructions were definitely my f most famous videos. Although now my reviews on monitors are bigger because obviously that picks up other people. Uh, I, yeah. My biggest video for some reason is the lens distortion uh, video oh, yeah, that I yeah. explained what a lens distortion is and how to film it. And that's my biggest video. I have like 60,000 views on it. But um, for some reason, I think it's because it g collected people from other departments. Yeah. But the disconstructions were definitely the biggest thing. But now... What I'm doing on Twitch is different, you know. On Twitch, I'm 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 doing multiple things. I've started doing Twitch a year ago. I used to watch Twitch all the time because I I do a lot of I play a lot of games. I'm a big gamer, and and so even when I was not working in the games industry, when, it, when even even when I was still in VFX, I've been playing games since I'm six years old, you know, and I've never really stopped. Yeah. I've I've always continued playing games even to this day. Uh, uh, almost every day I play games. So I was following a lot of gamers on Twitch, and I started thinking, okay, it could be cool to do other stuff on Twitch as well. I, there's already people doing it. There's people doing modeling. Right. There's people doing ZBrush. There's people doing drawing. 
but no one really was doing VFX for sure. So no one was doing nuke, no one was doing editing, no one was doing those kind of things. And so I started doing streams a year ago, um, and I started getting a lot of people asking me, "Oh, can I? Can you review my showreel? Can you help me with my showreel?" That's why I started doing the showreel reviews, and then I started doing the uh, workshops in nuke, and then I also started doing some book reviews and. And yeah, and because it's Twitch's games, I also play games on it. But obviously, my audience is very different. You know, like I, when I play a game, you know, when I'm doing a nuke workshop, I usually have like 200 people watching, you know, live. Um, right. But if I'm playing a game, I might have like maybe 50 people. So it, it's, hmm. I think from the VFX people, then it narrows down to just the people that are in VFX but also play games. Right. Yeah. So it, I think it becomes smaller. But when I'm playing games on Twitch, it's just like a relaxing session. I'm just like playing games and. But that's, we do, that's we do Q and A, but it's you're you talking know. about live views, right? 250, uh, 200 live views, people yeah, live. live views, yeah. That's yeah. that's still a very decent yeah. number for live. Well, for for Twitch, it is like for for creative streams. Usually, creative streams, you know, of people doing drawings, of people doing ZBrush or modeling or anything, it's really on the top end because usually you have some people doing maybe 300 views. That's the top top artists artists on Twitch. Some people, usually they do, you know, the biggest artists on Twitch do anything between 50 to 300. Yeah. And I'm usually, I'm now quite, I'm always having at least 150. That's what I where I am at the moment. Sometimes I go to 200. Sometimes I go back to 100. So it depends on the day, of course. But I already have, I, I've noticed that I have at least 150 people that always show up. And so it's a, it's a, it's a considerable following in, in Twitch. And, and I have... I've only been doing it for a year, and I, I I have like about 300 subscribers, which is quite good for Twitch already for an artistic yeah. uh, stream, you know? Uh, so it's definitely become something that I've really enjoyed. I'm doing it really for because I'm enjoying it. I, I can tell you one thing. Like, I'm not earning enough money from YouTube and Twitch don't pay almost anything, you know? They pay very little money. So. Yeah. I, I'm doing it because I love it. You know, I do YouTube videos because I love to do them and share with my community, and I do Twitch streams because I love talking with them and helping them. The 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 biggest like the from all those platforms, the two platforms that really give me more revenue is definitely Patreon and definitely Kickstarter. Right. Those are the two big ones where I have on Patreon, I have my biggest fans, which really support my platform, and then of course in Kickstarter. It's like a, a very niche market. You know, I have, like I said, 450 students, but my course is very, very advanced. So people pay a lot for it, you know, so, so it's, it's because it's like a mentored course. So those are the two platforms that really are, um, I, I think if, any, if anyone in here is listening and wanting to start doing these things, I would advise you to use YouTube and use Twitch as a promotion to something else. That's what yeah. I would advise you. So I would advise you to put YouTube videos up not for money because you're never gonna get it unless it, unless you're doing a video about a cat or yeah. doing a mim review. You'll never get it. So your YouTube video should be to build the brand of something else that you're gonna sell. You know. So for example, let me give an example. Imagine you're a really good concept artist. Imagine you're doing you do beautiful concept art. You do beautiful drawings. Yeah. And imagine that you want to make a living out of your own work, and you want to do like a comic book or you want to do maybe a board uh, game or something. You should use your YouTube channel to promote your work, promote your drawing and make a following and then make a Kickstarter for your comic book. Right. And then those people on YouTube will go into the Kickstarter and if you can get like 10% of those people to pay, you are good. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's the way that it really works this way. I'm running 
all these things on the 10% level. That's how it usually works, you know? So, so 10% meaning 10% of the people that are uh, watching you on YouTube would end up potentially... Uh, yeah. Well, that's, well, it's, that's it's a nice less, Obviously, it's less, but I'm, I'm yeah. talking about more about board games and about comic books and films. And right, yeah. If, if you consider, like, imagine that you have 100,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel if you're a, concept, if you're a famous concept artist. You have 100,000 subscribers. If you can get... Maybe 10% is too much, sorry. I would say, like, if you can get 1,000 of those people to pay you on Kickstarter for the comic book, you're going to be able to fund the comic book. Yeah. You know? So that's the way that, it, that I feel like it could be a way go, uh, we have to go. For example, if you are... Give you an example. Imagine if you are, like, um, 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 a, a person that, that has good scripts and wants to direct stuff. Imagine that you, that you can get maybe... 2,000 people to pay for the short film, you probably could do the short film with maybe 20,000 pounds or maybe 30,000 pounds and then with some favors from other people, you know, and that could be the first one. And then the second one, maybe you already have the first Kickstarter, so it'll be easier to do the second one. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of, again, I keep saying this, it's the micro thing. It's, it's, it's not about big numbers. It's about micro numbers, but those numbers are, are enough to do certain things. So. And I think there's something cool about, you know, I, I made a short film and I self-financed it and I, you know, did not even go, did not even try Kickstarter. And I didn't, do, I, did, I did it for, for certain reasons. One is because I don't think I have enough, like, inherent following because I don't have a YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And, you know, this podcast yeah. is great and people find a lot of uh, value in it, but it doesn't attract a huge number of people. So I don't, I didn't think about it as potentially a big thing. Plus, I know... I I have friends who've done successful Kickstarter campaigns. I know how much work it is to just oh, yeah, you know it is. to yeah, push it. it. Absolutely, it's relentless. It's it's almost as yeah. hard as just like going out and working for the money. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is. It um, is. But you see, it's your thing. So it's it's almost like yes, it's more work than working in production. But because it's your own project, you're gonna work harder and, and you're gonna yeah. work better. And you know, and the so. other advantage I think in it is that because you're just putting that energy outside. Um, trying to grab other people's attention, you're already creating some kind of captive audience. Like people who spend money on your project on Kickstarter are not just, you know, people who are doing you a favor and you think about it like, oh yeah, now I have the money. These are people that are going to eagerly await the release of your film. Like they want to, yeah, they, want, exactly. they want their, yeah. they want their money's worth back, you know? Yeah. And it's a good thing because... And I- I, I feel like I feel like a lot of people that I talk about they say oh but you know why should I bother you know there's too many of us and there's too many Kickstarters too many projects but people fail to realize that the artistic community like ourselves you know VFX artists 3D artists concept artists all of this all of these departments from VFX and gaming we're not that many you know like yeah. we can probably count ourselves by the millions you know and there are billions of people in the world you know so so even if we all of us would start doing now short films and comic right. books, and it doesn't really matter because there is enough people that are not art- artists to actually buy our content. And I think, I think that's why I'm so happy to live on the time that I live because I think now we have a content-hungry society. You know, people, especially oh, now, yeah. people are home and they really want to see things and they want to see sure. shows and they want to see comic books and they want to listen to music and they all... I guess I guess what I'm saying is like I think we should take more cues from the music industry. You know, if you look at the musicians, they make their music and they it's their IP, you know, right. and then they make concerts and then they make 
money from the CDs a little bit, but then they make money from the vinyls, and then they make money from the special editions, and then they make money from uh, the especially concerts, of course. Yeah, I think course, course. us as artists, you know, people that are 3D artists and modelers and concept artists and visual effects artists and compositors, we should start learning to be a bit more like them, and we should focus our attention to make IP. Yeah, because I think totally. that. Why would we? Why would we spend 20 years working on Star Wars IP? You know, maybe get together and make your own IP. Exactly. And it will never be as big as Star Wars, but maybe it will be big enough to give you enough money to live and enough money to continue, and especially enough um, enough inspiration to become an artist and do better things and continue to evolve. You know, I just feel like like. Like people forget that and the importance of IP. You even see that on companies. There is no, like, this is why you look at companies like ILM and you look at companies like Framestore and you look at companies like Pixar. I know that they've been bought by other big, big corporates like Disney, but they started, they were bought because they started working on IP. That's the key thing here, you know. They started working on their own things. If you look at Framestore, they, They, they are starting to work on their own productions, their own directions, and things that they direct themselves. This is really, I think, the future of these kind of contents, and we should ride that train as well, instead of all, all of us working for the people, I believe, you know? Yeah, totally. But I actually, to that point, I was wondering, because you say, as you say, you're still on the, on the road to being able to be self-sustaining just from... Twitch and, yeah. and those things. Yeah. Uh, over the last five years since you've started, you know, kind of developing this um, this online presence, have you ever um, been to a place where you got too much normal work, where it basically was threatening to take you away from your the time that you would need to be investing in YouTube mm -hmm. videos? And how did you manage that? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. I, I'm constantly on that situation where I have too much work and I can't really focus enough on my course or, you know, I've been like very bad at that. Sometimes I fail to deliver all the classes that I should have delivered or right. I fail to deliver all the Patreon uh, rewards that I should have done. So that happens to me all the time. And that's why I was telling you that it's a crossword for me. Like I'm kind of like a crossroad. I'm yeah. kind of like debating to myself. I should just focus on one thing um, because it is a full-time job to do a YouTube channel, a Twitch stream and, and to do, a Kickstarter, it is a full-time job for sure. And obviously, you need to be careful because because the production work is the reason why my channel is successful. And obviously, if I stop doing production work, I might lose uh, momentum because then I don't have production, which is what why people came to my channel in the first place. Yeah. But as long as you can create production-level productions, even if it's your own productions, as long as they look as good and they have the same pipeline as the real productions, then you are going to be fine with that. You know, That's the level of quality that you have. The bar has to be very high. If you're going to make like a music video or a commercial that is going to be specifically done just for your channel and for your followers, and it's going to be like a project of love that you're going to be giving away on a course or something, it has to look as good as any production that comes from the mill or whatever you know yeah so that that's why i was saying that i would hire those people to do it you know because then it becomes just as good as those you know 
Yeah, no, I mean it's uh, it is definitely seems like a like a challenge that uh, that takes kind of mastering to 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 be able to. It do. is, it is, yeah, it is. But I, I I feel like if anything, I know we've been talking about this for a long time, but if anything, I think people should start looking into their future. You know, yeah. of, of what should they be doing as their own thing. Personal, I, I guess I guess a lot of people say these things, but personal projects are. Much more important, I think, than people give it credit for. And I think they are so important, not just for the development of your artistry, but also the development of your career and also the potential contacts you might have from that personal work. You know, I think if anything, people that are not doing personal work right now, they should start one right away because they are going to be very like if you only work in production with nothing personal happening the chances are is you're going to become a bitter old man and you're never really going to leave that work yeah. you know, ever. And and I, that's going to become a problem in the future when you want to leave and when you become obsolete, you know? Exactly. So that, that's the thing because we'll all become obsolete, you know? Obviously, there will always be younger people coming in and doing better and cooler stuff. But And that's why you should always focus on having a strategy or a way out or other things, you know? So for you, it seems like the next kind of step in your, in your career or the next uh, big challenge is to start creating your own uh, original content that yeah. you're going to somehow interwe- intervene very carefully, very art- artistically uh, with, your, uh, with your current uh, track of releasing uh, courses and and uh, and teaching mm-hmm. online and and um, and engaging your community, which I think is a great. I mean, I'm excited for you. I wonder what what are you actively doing about it right now? Like, have you started like coming up with scripts, or do you already have scripts in your in your uh, in your drawer? Yeah. And um, and what's like? How do you well, plan that? Like, kind of moving I, forward, if you think about I, it, it's in a year from now. Yeah. So. I don't, um, um, I have, um, I've been slowly doing it for sure, yes. So so the short film that I said I was still finishing, that's a short film I filmed with my students about two years ago. So that short film is a zero budget short film. You know, I did it with my students. We did it with the equipment we could find. We did it with the actors we could find. We did it on the city where the university is. So it's a very low budget. It's not very good. It's just a horror film that I, it's a short horror short film that I enjoyed doing with them. And it was more about the process of doing it than anything else. So that one I'm doing right now. So I'm I'm about I've already started doing it on Twitch. I'm actually comping it live on Twitch, oh, cool. you know, as I go. And I'm gonna be doing the conforming on Twitch and I'm gonna be doing the editorial on Twitch and in the grading as well. So it's gonna be like a project that's gonna take me a year to finish, because I'll slowly do it again. Then I have my my two CG leads that I have on my company, they're doing the CG. So the CG is gonna be with deep compositing, with aces, with everything. All the it's going to be in 4K. It's going to be with Udini. Nice. It's going to be as it should from a mill production. Obviously, the film itself, the acting is not very good because it's from the students and the locations are just the locations we found. You know, on the school, not the school, sorry, on the city where the school is. So obviously, the film is a very limited film, but this is the first one. You know, it's right. the first one, and so it's going to be the first of many. I hope. That's my plan is to finish this one first. Um, I have a script that I finished. Yes, I have a script of, of, of a sci-fi um, a pilot that I would like it to become a TV show of like eight episodes or something. And that one requires a bit more uh, work because it would require certain uh, shots to be in green screen. Mm-hmm. It would require some spaceships uh, uh, modeling. It would require some sets as well. 
Uh, I'm planning to do that one uh, as a Kickstarter so I can fund it, and I'm planning to do that one um, together with uh, some of the studios that I've filmed. You know, so yeah. I have filmed on a couple of motion control student students, uh, sorry, studios in the world, and I'm planning to do them with them as a partnership. So oh, nice. that one is ongoing. You know, and so motion control or I've motion been, capture or both. Motion, or? motion control. Motion, motion control. control. Okay. Obviously, that was my plan uh, to start that one, to film that one soon. But obviously, now with the coronavirus, I'm reflecting a bit that maybe right. I should maybe look into a full CG project right now because right now I can't film anything. You know, so I have enough animators on my network and I have enough animators on my company and enough CG artists to actually build something. It wouldn't be very different from the short. Like I've done. The last, the biggest CG trailer I did was like two years ago. I did it for a mobile game called Heroes Arena, and it was like about two minutes long. And we had about t 20 people on that job. Um, so if I do a short film, it will probably be like two or three minutes long. It will probably be the same team that did that trailer, and it will probably be the same kind of look at, at that trailer as it has. So that's maybe going to be my next step, because now with the coronavirus, I don't feel like I'm... I don't think I'm going to be on set anytime soon. I don't think so. Really? You know, so, so, even, even yeah. like, how long do you imagine before you're back on set? Or, of course, nobody knows. I don't knows, think but. so, because I, I feel like, at least, for example, in Britain, like, they're discussing lockdowns until October, and yeah. that means it will be until next year. That I mean, maybe we'll never go back to normal as well. I don't believe it's going to be that soon, because I don't think a vaccine will happen. Like, there's... We've never had vaccines of anything. Like, if you look at other viruses, yeah. we don't have... Man, we still have, like... HIV still doesn't have a vaccine. Like, right. and how long has been that? I don't know if this is going to be that fast as people think. And I... So that's why I'm kind of thinking maybe full CG would be my route. And, um, and if it is full CG, it will be done as often as I usually do my shows, which I, I tend to not use mocap. I tend to use manual animation oh, because... Cool. Um, I have very talented animators on my team, and they are so good. And I, I think I can convey different feelings when I have a hand animation project. I, yeah. I like that a lot, you know. So, I think I've seen uh, in, in one of your breakdowns for the uh, a Walking Dead uh, trailer yeah. that you've you've. Yeah. It seems like you've used um, some like homemade. Well, that one, yeah, but that that one was like that was just not, yeah. it wasn't really active. That was just right. like a zombie just, going right. walking around. So yeah. yeah, my head of CG, like like the lead CG project, he basically used the connect and just captured himself with the connect. Yes, um, so that, that was fine. But yeah. yeah, I did a recent mockup uh, project just as a test. I mean, and the client was uh, willing to take a risk of getting like crappy results anyway uh, with <laughs> uh, with the iPhone uh, with the iPhone X. You know, with the uh, yeah yeah, it has the two cameras. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and it came out. A bit uncanny, but uh, for for you know for what it is, you know, like something that we recorded basically voice actors with an iPhone, uh, we managed to make characters move their lips and uh, and talk on camera. It's not I wouldn't say do it because not especially not for a film that you want to you know yeah exactly uh, present you. But uh, but there is some promise there, especially with uh, with the emergence of uh, Unreal Five and. Unreal Engine Five and and all the yeah. all the promise that it brings. I think that that's definitely like one. Every time I try to make every time I make a f short film, I try to experiment with new technology that I haven't used before. My last one used uh, artificial uh, mo 
machine learning. I did like a face swap film. Um, and, uh, and I think the, for me, the next one is definitely, and before that it was virtual reality, mixed reality with a uh, Vive track with the camera tracked on using the Vive, uh, Vive controller. And, um, yeah. and the next one I'm pretty sure is going to be, uh, something with on with a uh, real-time uh game engine and uh um i think we're i think i covered most of what i wanted to ask you i mean of course we could go from for longer uh <laughs> but i want to uh get people give people a break what i wanted to uh last last thing i usually ask uh, my guest is uh what's your you know your social media handles your where can people find you online of course yeah, uh, I don't think you've even mentioned that it's called Hugo's Hugo's desk. Um, <laughs> I know I did I did a, a poor job of presenting myself. Yes, I did. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, so yeah. <laughs> and do you? And is it yeah. also the name of the of the of your company, Hugo's De- Hugo's desk? Uh, uh, no, it's not. No, no. My company, uh, my company doesn't have an online presence. Like the, I'll I'll explain really shortly okay, about that. So. Yeah, so I don't have an online presence yet because um, I'll be very honest. As soon as I left the mill, I went to a project right away and I've never stopped until now, until the coronavirus. Wow. So I never had the time to do a website or to even do a showreel or to even do anything to promote my company because I had, when I left the mill, I already had a job and then I had another one and then another one and it never stopped until right now when I'm finally, it's been five years and it's the first time I don't have a job. Like I don't have a project. So and so now I'm looking into it. I'm looking into making a website. I'm looking into making a showreel finally, <laughs> since I've never done a showreel for it. Uh, I guess it's good news because that means I never had to work, for, uh, look yeah, for work, you know, great. which is good news. But, but now, but I'm still debating if I'm going to actually do it because I don't think I want too much work. Because again, sounds like I'm you, so focused yeah. with YouTube and I'm so focused on Twitch and Kickstarter. But I'm still debating. But. Uh, but yeah, the 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 company is called the VFX Bureau. You know, just like the 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 FBI, it's the Visual Effects Bureau. That's the name of the company. Uh, but we, I mean, I bought the domain, I bought all those things, but I, I've never really made an online presence. But uh, my most of my clients and most of my, the people know me as Hugo Guerre, and they find me from my website. I have a U website. Uh, you know, if you want to see my work. Just go to Google and you just put yugoafengerre.com. Uh, That's my website. That's where I have my latest productions that I've done. The last project that I have there is the Vermintide 2 uh, uh, trailer that I directed, which is a live-action trailer with miniatures and motion control. I was very happy that just yesterday I found that I won two awards with that oh, uh, project. So I won uh, two Tele Awards again. So it's I was be- very, very it's, happy it's, with that. Uh, it's very beautiful, and I saw some some breakdowns of how you did it. It's really interesting and nice kind of cl- combination of practical and, uh, yeah. and digital. Yeah. And I'm very very proud of that job. So I I just won the Tele Award for director, and I won the Tele Award from the audience. So nice. That means the. The project was the voted from the audience, which was really nice. I always like that award because that's the award you want to get, you know. Oh yeah, totally. Um, because that means people li- liked it, you know. So, so uh, you can go to hugoafengerre.com to see my work, and then Hugo's desk on everything else. You know, it's Hugo's desk on Twitch, it's Hugo's desk on YouTube, it's Hugo's desk altogether, it's Hugo's desk on YouTube, Hugo's desk on Twitter. Like, uh, yeah, I have Hugo's desk across the board on all the social platforms. Uh, but uh, you'll find me three times a week. Uh, I'm I'm streaming at 4 o'clock UK time every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Uh, and I do showroom reviews, portfolio reviews. I do Nuke workshops. Um, I do 
book reviews and I play some games on Twitch. On YouTube, I launch a video per week. Um, often they are either short smithits of Twitch or they are bespoke videos that I make um, specifically for YouTube. Uh, and I launch. I try to la launch one video per week. I try. Sometimes I fail, of course. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's that's my social uh, media. I'm sure you can put the link on the. Yeah, the I will. And uh, I'm I'm just curious, yeah. kind of a, as a last anecdote, what's uh, the most exciting uh, across all those things? You don't have to, you know, one per per each. Just kind of one uh, new thing that excites you. Is it a, a game or uh, some video that you're working on or something else? What What's right now kind of uh, the top of your... Yeah, so so from the videos I'm making, you mean? Uh, or that, or the games yeah. that you're about yeah. to play or have yeah. played. So, or... so, so from the videos that I'm going to make, I'm, I'll do it two times then. The videos I'm making, like I'm really looking forward to launching uh, two videos uh, that I've been working for a long time. So... Maybe too much long time. So um, I'm currently doing a full professional review of the of the new Mac Pro uh, that you see on the background here, uh, because I feel like there's no YouTube video from a professional point of view. There's just like YouTubers talking about the, the computer, you know? Yeah. So I, I've been doing that since I bought the machine. I bought the machine in December. So I've been doing that for six months now. Oh, wow. And I have everything from using it in Nuke, using it in Maya, using it with rendering. Like, like I've been run, using it with Windows, using it with uh, Mac OS, really running down different graphic cards checking how it works like it's a full review so I've been working on that for several months nice. and it will be out soon I hope the other video that I'm really looking forward that I've been working on it for the last month um, is a video about why you should work from home and I think that's a video that has been that is a video that I'm doing um, for a long time as well because like, I, like you said I've been working from home for five years I know now everyone is working from home, but I want to give my opinion and my rundown of why you actually should and how does it work, and I'm going to be showing how that works. Right. Uh, so those are the two next videos that I'm going to drop on YouTube as large videos. I usually do a large video per month, and then I, every week I have the other ones, the small ones from Twitch. Um, then in terms of things that are coming up, man, I... I'm just waiting for Last of Us Part Two. That's the only thing I'm waiting for. Okay, <laughs> you know, like like that game is uh, the biggest game that is going to come out this year. Uh, it's going to be out in the 15th of June, and I can't wait to play it. And I, I've I've stopped. I don't. I'm not really playing any games right now. Um, I'm just waiting for that game to come out. You, I can't wait to play it. I, I don't think I, I haven't played the first one, but I've I'm so far behind. I want to play Alex. I don't know if you've played Alex in uh, VR. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't played it yet, but I know. Yeah, I, I haven't played it yet. I don't have a, a, a VR headset to play it yet. I only have a, a PlayStation VR headset, and it oh. doesn't really, doesn't really, is not compatible with the PlayStation VR headset. So, uh, but yeah, but I, that's the game that I'm most looking forward. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be probably just like the Part One. Last of Us Part One was one was by far the best game of the of, of the generation, and now I'm sure this will be the oh, biggest wow, game of the generation. Oh wow, that's great! That's well. great to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, so. And a bonus question: um, I know that your you know Hugo's desk is very famous. The your backdrop is really you know is is uh, is very familiar, <laughs> and and I've also seen pictures of the of the front end or what's in front of you, which is like I don't know six screens. It's really crazy. I'm going to post a picture of that on on the on the podcast page because it's really inspiring to watch and uh, kind of uh, you, you, a lot of people I'm sure are drooling over that. Um, but just, I just did a video about that actually. I just did a video. It was a webinar for BenQ, which I'm going to add it to my YouTube channel as well. Which which I basically 
basically explain what all of is, it yeah. and explain yeah because people are kind of why do you have all this and I yeah there's a reason it's the reason is because this is actually a triple setup you know I have it as a compositing station but also an editorial station and a grading station right. so obviously I live in London so my space is limited so instead of having three stations I only have one merged in one and, yeah. and that's why there's so many things here you know and uh, and so just a quick kind of glimpse not the gl not literally glimpse but like what's outside Hugo's desk like what do you what does the rest of your place look like what's what do you uh, take pride in the most beyond what's obviously the confinement of what everybody knows you for which is your desk <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean like the rest of my house you mean? Yeah, I don't like, know do you have a favorite plant or like do you have a pet or what's what's uh, what? I do yes I have I have a dog and two cats and I love them and I, we walk around all the time with them and they are already very old you know they are 15 years old oh wow they uh, even my dog you know they came from Portugal they're all like like uh, abandoned they were abandoned when they were babies and we found them oh, on the street yeah. um, so the, I have those three pets which are biggest love of my life as well and then of course I'm married I have my wife as well Anna which I, she, for the last five years, I've been working from home. So we, of course, are both home as well. Yeah. Well, I have a side project that I've been doing with her for the last two months. I've uh, released, uh, Anna is a really good cook. She's really good. And we are both vegetarians. And so Anna just released a, a, a YouTube channel just for vegan and vegetarians. And I've been helping her film it. And I've been helping editing it and grading it. And, oh, nice. And uh, she does the cooking and I film it. And so we just launched that uh, YouTube channel. It's very small. You know, we only have like 150 subscribers so far. It's very, very small. And it just started. But that's kind of like a like a, an extra thing I do with her. Yeah. Um, and we we share a love for filmmaking. So we, you know, on my living room, I have a projector and we watch movies all the time. And and I have like a collection of over a thousand Blu-rays, you know. Wow. So, so it's, um, because I, I like, um, I've never been a digital person at all on these things. I'll, I'll, it's not because I don't, I love digital, um, uh, the way of you buying a game digitally and way of you buying a film digitally. I think it's awesome. And that's, you know, I, I, I watch a lot of things and watch uh, music as well, but, and listen to music. But the reason I still buy Blu-rays and the reason I still buy 4K Blu-rays is for two reasons. Like, one of them is because the quality is still better. You know, like, if you have a 4K Blu-ray, you're running a 100 megabyte uh, bandwidth stream. Yeah. And if you watch a 4K stream on Netflix, you're lucky if it gets to 20 megabytes. So the the banding is worse, the quality is worse, you don't even see the grain on the footage. So if you watch a Blu-ray 4K, still the best way to watch it. And my projector is 10-bit, you know, so you wow. can really watch it really yeah. well. So you can watch it in HDR and everything. So that's one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. The second reason, of course, is all the audio commentaries and all the behind the scenes. Because that, unfortunately, is not translating into the digital world, which is a shame. It is, you know? it is, yeah. And I think also it's 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 it's... It's great to have something physical that you own that you know is like it is, part of it your... is. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a it's a pain to to move right. houses because <laughs> it's a thousand uh, cases, you know. Like and together with my one thousand cases of games as well. Oh yeah. So because I also have physical games, but nothing beats. I I was very happy to see that Disney Plus lately they've been actually putting behind the scenes of the Mandalorian as a show. Yeah. I really hope they start putting audio commentaries and other stuff as well. I just feel like there's been a lost thing in the yeah. translation here. Because why can't they just put an extra stream? Because they have the streams for the different languages. They could just put another stream totally. for the audio commentary. Yeah. I, I don't really understand why we lost that. And 
That is still one of the biggest reasons why I still will continue to buy Blu-rays. Sometimes I even buy DVDs because of that. I'll give an example. Like, like, just recently I bought this DVD, which is Splash. Yeah. And the reason oh, wow. I bought it on DVD is because the Blu-ray version has been edited and the Disney Plus version has been edited. So they basically removed... Darren Allen, you know, there's a, there's several moments where she's naked. Really? And they removed that from the Blu-ray and they removed that from the Disney Plus version. Uh. And and still this DVD, this DVD, which is very old, it's the only, it's from 97. This DVD is still the only version that has an audio commentary from Ron Howard. So that's I still buy DVDs because yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, a great, uh, great advice all, all around. I'm glad I asked you about that. Uh, yeah, and uh, and yeah, thank you so much for your time, and uh, and good luck. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I hope your audience enjoyed our our conversation. Uh, I know I I talked too much, and I know it was very no. Long. I, Sorry I'm about sure that. I have, and, and <laughs> it's it's really you know really excited for you for for the next you know for the next sort of uh, mashup of of that you're trying to put together of like, you know, things that you love doing and your own creative aspirations and your, you know, following and, and your teaching and, and the fact that, uh, that you inspire others. And I also love the fact, just mentioning for a second, that your last few videos were also talking about not just filmmaking and, and uh, visual effects um, and compositing, but but also about doing exactly those other things, you know, like uh, yeah. thinking outside of, yeah of the of the box and and uh the immediate sort of um goals that some of your students have and thinking beyond yeah. about developing their own uh voice and developing their own online presence and 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 trying yeah. to think 10 years 20 years ahead as, as opposed to just two years and you know five years ahead yeah uh, exactly, exactly so yeah you're doing a great service and uh you're one of the one of the gurus out there, which is, you know, remarkable. And, uh, you know, no being too kind, no being too kind. Thank you so much for that. Great. Well, Ad, uh, it was an honor and, okay. uh, thank you. Cool. Thank you so much, David. Thank All you. right. Cool. And that was it. Episode 28 of the post post podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're listening to this outro, that means that you're listening to the audio version of this episode. And I'm just reminding you that there is a video version of it. So if you want to listen to all of it all over again, and also see us during this conversation, feel free to go to the postpostpodcast.com where you're going to find the link to the YouTube channel and this episode specifically. And that's it until next time. Stay inspired. Stay inspired.